0: Thank mm-hmm. you. Hello there. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this Pan-African Review podcast. I am your host, Ginty, and we are talking about liberation. And by the way, we will have a series of podcasts on liberation because as you might have seen, and if you had not heard about this before, remember to subscribe and get yourself a copy of the Pan-African Review magazine. And the African Liberation special magazine is out already. You can subscribe and pay using mobile money or you can actually do it using PayPal just head over to the social media accounts of the Pan-African Review and get all the information there So, today we are having a conversation with Dr. Moses Kisa. He wrote an article titled Africa's Elusive Quest for True Liberation. We will talk about what true liberation means, what he suggested the African leaders should do, what we, the people, should do, and how we should be asking for accountability so that we get to that level of being truly liberated. Thank you very much Dr. Moses Kisa for finding time for this podcast and the first time I mentioned your name it was actually during the very first episode of the Pan-African Review and I was talking with Dr. Lonzen and he had written an article inspired by a previous article you had made uh, for the Pan-African Review so your name has been mentioned many times here thank you very much for finding the time how are you doing? Good,
1: it's a pleasure to speak with you and thank you for your very kind invitation.
0: Let's talk about the African liberation. So, basically, uh, there is this um, article that we have written and it's very nice, it's very inspiring. It is called Africa's Elusive Quest for True Liberation. You say that the African continent remains hostage to myriad forces, both internally. And externally, I mean, externally produced as well. So why do you have a feeling that Africa is still captive?
1: There's no doubt about that. I mean, if you know anything about the African continent today, you would uh, be remiss not to recognize, not to appreciate that the continent remains under capture, Uh, under capture by external forces, by, uh, you know, multinational corporations, by uh, Western powers, by international and transnational actors, both state actors and non-state actors who have all sorts of interests and who have all sorts of ambitions and aspirations to control, to uh, dominate, and to exploit the continent. Uh, Those ones have always been there and they remain very much alive. Um, From the time the continent was you know, uh, first um, explored for free labor, free forced labor on a large scale more than 400 years ago. uh, When, you know, the process of shipping Africans as human cargo took off in earnest and intensified, especially during the transatlantic slave trade, uh, the largest undertaking of uh, human Exploration and exportation on a large scale, simply unprecedented in human history, where you had, by some estimates, more than 20 million people shipped out of a continent that in any event was not that hugely populated, was very sparsely populated, getting 20 million out of the continent in a period of about 200 years was, was simply you know, staggering and, and unheard of. Since that time, the project of exploiting, dominating, and despoiling the continent has never changed. It's so, only changed in, in form and format. The same logic still applies today. So there's that external, you know, force. Internally, you know, many African peoples remain under conditions of domination and and violation of their basic freedoms, and unable to do the sorts of things they should do as human beings because of Internal capture. So there's external domination and marginalization as well as internal capture by internal forces.
0: There is somewhere you talk about external forces bent on keeping a grip on the continent. By external forces, what do you mean exactly? Because obviously when when we talk about liberation... For me, how I understood it uh, after reading what you wrote, it's not just about what you say and the cosmetics about it. It's also about the policies that you put uh, Mm. in place Mm. to to give a number of advantages to your country people. Like you mentioned, for example, multinationals. I happen to be in a domain where we talk a lot about taxation. How do you tax the multinationals versus how you tax the mamamboga? The leaders, are they being influenced by those forces?
1: No, there is, there is a, a reciprocal relationship there in the sense that many African rulers, I, in fact, many times don't want to call them leaders. You know, most <laughs> of the fellows who have been yeah, they are ruling, ruling. <laughs> are rulers, you know, <laughs> they are not leaders because you see, leaders should do things that make a difference, a qualitative difference in the social, economic, and political conditions of the people. Uh, there are only a few truly you know, African leaders that we have had. And many of them were actually independence leaders. In the decades since African nations got independence in the 1960s, we have had mostly rulers, all right, who are, for the most part, actually agents of Western interests, of external forces. They have done things either deliberately or inadvertently that advance the interests of other forces, external, other actors, external, other than the interests of their own people who are the internal actors. And so when you talk about, for example, multinational corporations and their activities on the continent that include, you know, tax avoidance and tax evasion, right? If you look at many studies that have been done to show what the continent loses, okay, through the activities of, western multinational national corporations it's simply incredible um what the continent loses when you, when you compare with what we supposedly get in the form of foreign aid something that is hyped all the time you compare what the continent loses by not being able to tax okay by not being able to stop the hemorrhage, the the, the loss you know um the continent cannot be free and prosperous unless and until its resources are for the benefit and the well-being of its people. You look at the Congo, look at the country called the Democratic Republic of the Congo, frankly, and I don't mean to, you know, uh, single out Congo for anything, but that country pains me a lot because the Congo is very much emblematic of the sort of elusive, quest for liberation and freedom that I wrote about in the Pan-African Review article, a country that is so rich, a country that is that has enormous potential, but has remained under capture by external forces and internal actors, such that its people remain under capture, they're not free, they're not able to exercise their human agency to live a life that they deserve. As human beings with the full dignity. You know, Cynthia, when we talk about liberation and emancipation, we are speaking about the dignity of the human person, such that you and I, as persons, as human beings, can live our lives without unnecessary encumbrances, without unnecessary hindrances to the things we want to do. Many of our people on the continent do not have the full dignity. Of the human person that they deserve, and that is where the problem remains.
0: You know, like you haven't reached a level where you feel like you are enough. quite. not the
1: problem. Actually, you've you know sort of hit the the, the nail on the head. We, we still have that problem where many of our compatriots, many of our you know fellow African citizens, do not have the empowerment to feel that they are full human beings. We've been told historically that if you're a black person. If you're an African, you're not human, you know? Remember the very practice, the very project of enslaving uh, black people, African people, was predicated on the understanding that these people are not human beings, all right? Uh, The continent was explored and exploited precisely because the thinking in Europe, in the West at the time was that the people who live in that continent are not human enough. Mm. and that's why even in the united states you know at the time the country was independent from great britain african americans or or black people black and brown people in the, in the united states could not be treated as full citizens you know there was something like they were three quarters of a human being mm-hmm. right and they were not seen as a real, you know, person in their own right. That sort of representation and projection of who an African is, and I'm afraid has not fundamentally changed. There's still the, um, you know, supposition that an African person, especially one who is somewhere on the continent, is to be treated as though they are either a child Okay. And you know what it means to be a child? It means, you know, people have to give you lectures. They have to, they have to keep a watch on you, right? Because you're a child. They have to tell you what is wrong and right, meaning that you cannot see that for yourself. And if you're a child, it also means somehow people have to give you handouts, all right? Yeah. And assist you to live that way of, seeing who an African is right that's that's one way as a child if if you're not seen as a child as an African you are seen as somebody who has not yet matured okay to think for yourself and to Mm. to be able to articulate and say what you want to say right so whichever way you want to look at it we are still not seen as the way A white person in America or in in Europe
0: is is perceived and seen and and treated with respect. That was part one of our three-part series about Africa's illicit quest for liberation. Stay tuned for part two.